Morning, friends. Morning. Am I on? Am I on? Yeah? Good. There we go. Don't give me that look. <laughs> Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. A few messages here in chapter 1. Uh, before we read the passage, am I the only one who heard a strange noise last week? Okay, thank you. Yep. Let's just get that cat out of the bag, okay? That was weird. Uh, we don't know what it was, but we have a SWAT team ready and assembled today. If it happens again, we will handle it, uh, uh, whether it's a frog or, you know, we don't know what it is. Um, but I will stop if I hear it again. <laughs> a lot to get to in this passage, just jam-packed like Philly cheesesteak. It's just good. Let's start reading together Revelation chapter 1. In verse 9, we're going to read 9 through 20, and then next week we will start to get into the churches and take a week on each particular letter to each particular church. This is the word of the Lord. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write down, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right, he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, we simply ask for a greater and more clear and more glorious vision of Jesus Christ this morning. Not just what he has done for us, Lord, but who he is. The beauty of his person. We pray that for our kids. As we think about starting Sunday school this week and, and giving out Bibles, Lord, we don't just want the kids to know the Bible. We don't just want them to know right from wrong. We don't just want them to obey their parents. 
we want them to grow up to know Jesus. A personal, real relationship with you, Lord Jesus. We all have a relationship, Father, with the Son. It's either one of judgment or one of salvation. And so we pray that relationship for all of us would be salvation, would be to know him in his grace and his love. So we ask that you would reveal apocalypse, unveil Jesus Christ to us this morning, transform our lowly thoughts about him into grand thoughts. We ask your blessing on this preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start with an incredibly important question, most important question that you will ever answer. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? What comes into your mind when you think about Jesus? That is the most important thing about you. That is the most important thing about you. We can think of a lot of other important things, yes, but that's the most important. And our culture may be familiar with Jesus, would you say? But I think very confused about who he actually is. We're familiar but confused. Um, if you ask people, who is Jesus, you're going to get a lot of interesting answers. Uh, I hear them all the time. I hear one answer is, is the Mr. Rogers Jesus. He wears a sharp sweater. He smiles a lot. He wants to be your neighbor or friend or homeboy, whatever it might be to you. Um, there's nothing threatening about that Jesus. He's, he's meek and mild. So, so this person, you know, thinks to me, Jesus uh, is the cute baby in the manger. You know, he's Christmas time. And I just like to think about him because it makes me feel good. Sentimental Jesus. I hear people talk about good teacher Jesus. So he's Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama or Oprah. Uh, this person says, I, I think of Jesus as a good moral guide to my life. You know, he's got some good teachings. I, I take some of them and it, and it helps me in my life and helps me to be a better person. He's like a, a guru. I hear people talk about socially conscious Jesus. He likes fair trade coffee. He has a, a long hipster beard that he oils. Uh, he likes to tweet and volunteer at charities. Socially conscious Jesus. Jesus came to change the world, uh, to make it a better place. He's living the gospel, you know, teaching us to be kind to each other. That's all it's about, just be kind. Now, there are grains of truth in those versions of Jesus and many others, but here's the deeper problem. Thinking we can remake Jesus, who is God, into whatever we want, into our own image. He's whoever I want him to be. I think of Jesus this way. That's not a good start to a sentence. Just, just stop talking at that point. Whatever comes after that is probably wrong. 
I just like to think of Jesus, when I picture God, I picture, no, just stop. Uh, here's an example in popular culture that's just sort of normal, accepted. Uh, you remember that great theological film, Talladega Nights? If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go with me, okay, on this. The scene where uh, Ricky Bobby is praying before the family meal. Uh, a wonderful family meal of KFC, Domino's, and the always delicious Taco Bell. He's praying, and they get into an argument about Jesus in the movie. Because Ricky likes to pray to baby Jesus. Sweet, tiny, infant baby Jesus. And his wife cuts him off and says, you know, Jesus did grow up. It's weird to pray to a baby. He says, well, I like the Christmas Jesus best. And I'm saying grace. So I'm going to pray to the Christmas Jesus. To which then his friend Cal jumps in and says, I like to picture Jesus with a tuxedo t-shirt. You know, because he's formal, but he also likes to party. And I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. It's ridiculous, but it pretty much nails it. Like, that's how we think about Jesus. I like to do this, so I like my Jesus to like that too. I'm like this, and so I want Jesus to be like that. Um, it's just a thought, but what if we let Jesus be who he actually is? It's just an idea. Let's kick it around. What if the biblical Jesus is actually the best Jesus, not the one I design and create? Because here's the thing. When you're in the deep trenches of life, you don't need a God who is just a better version of you. You need the God-man. You need the real thing. When a child dies, when someone you love is sexually abused, when you lose a job and you don't know what you're going to do next, when you lay awake at night and can't sleep because of guilt, fear, anxiety, when your marriage is struggling, you need the real Jesus. You need someone who is tough and tender, the lion and the lamb, almighty God and a human being like you. Someone who is a terrifying judge and will punish evil, but is also a merciful and compassionate Savior who is gentle and lowly of heart and loves to heal and help sinners and sufferers. That's who you need. Not some figment of your imagination who will let you down because you will let you down. That's Jesus of the Bible. That's who we get to see today in all his resplendent, exalted glory. You get a picture of him. That's pretty amazing. You see him from the perspective of heaven today. Not when he was on earth and his glory was veiled, but like the transfiguration when for a moment it was revealed on the mountain. It's revealed. So I have three points. Hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus, meeting Jesus. Hearing Jesus. The Apostle John minding his own business and something amazing happened. He hears Jesus. Verse 9. 
I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So it's interesting, writing around, we think, probably 95 AD, John sees himself and the church living together in the tribulation. Now, when you hear that phrase, the tribulation, there might be, uh, you know, probably a lot of, for a lot of us, different things pop into our mind. Uh, we have different associations with that, and maybe nothing comes into your mind. That's okay uh, when you hear that word. But I think the way John conceives of tribulation is very consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Jesus says in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, same word. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So he's saying that to his disciples and by extension to us. Paul uses the same Greek word 23 times in his letters, and 21 of them describe an ongoing present-day experience of the Christian. It's not something that's way out there. It's present. I think that's the tribulation. Rather than something that happens only in the time right before Jesus comes. Present day, ongoing. Matthew 24, Revelation 7 mention a great tribulation. And not all Christians agree on this, and that's okay. But given the context of those passages, as I have studied them, I take it to mean that great calamities, great suffering, great adversity are repeating over and over from Jesus' time, from the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., all the way to his second coming. There will be escalation. There will be intensity at the end, just before he comes. But it seems to me more likely that we're in the tribulation. John says, I'm a partner in 95 A.D. with you in the tribulation. I would just say, brothers and sisters, how much worse does it have to get before we believe we're in it? Global Christian organizations report that between 10,000 and 90,000 Christians are martyred for their faith every year. If that's true, it means several will die during our worship service. I think it's harder for us because... We don't feel it, the intensity of it, as much in the United States of America. And in a sense, we're thankful for that. We have a softer kind of persecution. But I don't think it's difficult to believe you're living in the tribulation if you're a Christian in Nigeria, Afghanistan, North Korea. I don't think it's going to take a lot of persuading to believe, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much worse it can get. Maybe a little, but it's bad. John is saying you conquer that suffering and persecution and tribulation the way Jesus did, through patient endurance. Listen, you are not just subjects in Jesus' kingdom. You are participating in the kingdom. You are not passive observers. You are active partakers. According to God, brothers and sisters, we are partners in the tribulation together. 
John experienced it firsthand. I was on the island called Patmos on the account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Most likely, this is during the Roman Emperor Domitian's reign. John was exiled to Patmos for preaching the gospel. Uh, This is a small, volcanic, rocky island in the Aegean Sea between modern-day Greece and Turkey. And John wasn't martyred, but he is suffering as a direct result of talking about Jesus. He counts it a privilege to suffer for the name. So, think about yourself. If a uh, government authority knocked on your door and said, you may not talk about Jesus, you may not read your Bible, you may not go to church, you may not talk to anybody else about Jesus, or you will be exiled. You will be taken from your home and your family and your friends, and you will go somewhere for who knows how long. How would you respond? Would that be a hard decision for you? Would you have to think about it? Folks, this is where it gets real. This is what Revelation is going to do to us. Are you in or are you not? You have to choose a side. And one of the devil's greatest tricks is in America making us think we don't. We can sit on the fence because we're wealthy and we don't feel it. But that's a lie. There it is. I hear it. What is that? What is it? SWAT team, activate. All right, well, you guys, I'll leave it to you guys to figure it out. I don't know what that is, but. Let's keep moving. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Lord's Day, this is the first and only mention of the Lord's Day in the New Testament, uh, which the early Christians understood as Sunday. This is the day that Jesus was resurrected, so they worshiped. Uh, the Jews did on Saturday. It got moved to Sunday. And I don't have time to do, you know, full-fledged here on the Sabbath, but um, it's good to wrestle with this idea of the Lord's Day, especially when it becomes very easy to miss worship on a Sunday. Uh, in some sense, Jesus has ownership of this day. Now, we can debate exactly what that looks like. We can talk about, you know, what the Sabbath looks like and what it, what it is to be faithful. But something about Sunday, he has some kind of ownership over. It's his day. It's not by accident that this is said, the Lord's day. So we have to wrestle with that. We have to think about that when, you know, culturally it's pretty easy to just, eh, I didn't feel like coming. Eh, I slept in. Eh, I got this going on. He has some kind of ownership, particularly over this time that we're in right now. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. 
John hears a voice commanding him to write down what he sees in this dreamlike vision and then send it to seven churches. Why these seven? Well, there certainly were others. There, there were other churches around. It's not that these were the only ones. It's been noted that the location of these churches form a circular route that the ancient mailman would have taken to deliver letters. So it's kind of a, a circle, a horseshoe. So we know that God does love postal workers because he's saving the taxpayer on gas here. Okay, it's just a nice, easy circle to deliver these letters. We also know that the, the problems and strengths of these churches really was kind of representative for all churches, uh, the things that they're going through. So geographically, spiritually, numerically, seven, they represent the church at all times and all places. They're representative for all of us. And that's why we can go through the letters. And yeah, there were things specific to what was going on at that time, but there are also things we're going through, things we struggle with, things, graces that we have received from the Lord. So John hears Jesus, then he sees Jesus, seeing Jesus. Time to engage the imagination, folks. Remember, you can't be transformed by it until you imagine it. You've got to imagine it. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. Jesus tells us the lampstands are symbolic for the church. And where do we find him standing? He's with the church. He's with the church. If you want to find Jesus, go to church. If you want to find Jesus, talk to his people. That's where he is. He's not a checked out CEO living on an island while his company struggles. He's in our midst. He's with us. He's on the front lines. And then John looks at Jesus and describes what he sees, which, let me just say, this is not about what Jesus looks like, okay? This is not a literal description of what he looks like. He doesn't have wool-like hair. He doesn't have feet that are bronze. He doesn't have red flaming eyes, literally. These are symbols that help you know what he is like. Not what he looks like, but what he is like, who he is. Verse 13, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. In that day, these were the clothes of a dignitary, someone of high rank. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. This is eternal wisdom. Connecting him with the Ancient of Days of Daniel 7, uh, it's possible to have a lot of white hair and not a lot of wisdom. It's possible. Not for any of you, but for others, it's possible. Jesus' wisdom is so pure, so transcendent, that it's white, as white as the purest white snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. As Nancy Guthrie says, Jesus doesn't just look at us, he looks into us. The fire in his eyes is a purifying gaze. He sees the moral goodness in your life. He sees the moral impurities in your life, the patterns of sin. And, and, and the fire in his eyes is a passion to make you holy, 
as he is holy. That's what he wants for you. That's what he cares about. That's what gets him up in the morning. Is changing you from the inside out to be like him. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. Now, feet in the ancient world symbolize the direction of your life. We would just say, how's your walk? Meaning, how's your life going? How's your relationship with Jesus? Okay, Jesus' life is the mixture of iron for strength and copper for stability. That makes bronze. What that means is his, his life is refined in absolute moral purity. He will never disappoint you. He will never have a moral failure. You will never pick up the paper and see Jesus failed. Jesus cheated on you. Jesus lied. Jesus stole. Jesus had unrighteous anger. Never. Who else can you say that about? No one ever has had feet of burnished bronze where they will never, ever disappoint you and you can trust them Completely, Jesus is the only one. He is the only person you should put your hope in fully and completely. Everybody else will fail you. I don't want to turn you into a cynic. I mean, yeah, we should still trust people, but not in an absolute sense. That's what it means, his feet. His feet, his life, the direction of his life is absolute moral purity, strength, and stability. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. How many of you have been to the Pacific Ocean? I've been there a lot. Spent a lot of time on the beach. And sometimes the waves are so big and so loud, you can't even hear the person next to you talk. You can hear the ocean before you actually see it. It's so loud. You can't ignore it. You have to get away from it just to get out of the sound range. Jesus' voice is something like that, this constant roar sound. (gasps) That's what John hears. So when the glorified, resurrected Jesus speaks, nobody ignores him. Not in heaven. No one argues, no one questions, they just obey. So when he speaks in the Bible... Don't argue with him. Listen to him. Young people, don't question him. Obey him. Don't think you're smarter than Jesus and his word. Just do what they do in heaven. Yes, Lord. You're right. I'm wrong. Correct me. Chastise me. Rebuke me. Change me. If I got an issue with the Bible, if I don't understand something or I think something's off, the issue is with me. Not with God. And I'll say this. If you will simply listen to God's word and obey it, you will save yourself so many problems. So many problems that I come across and in my own life. It would be solved if we trusted this. Listened to it and obeyed it. So many problems are just because I I don't like what this has to say. I don't want to listen. I want to do what I want to do. Verse 16. 
In his right hand, he held seven stars. He's holding what is precious to him with power, possessiveness. This is the church. He's holding. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So what's up with the two-edged sword? That's, to me, that's fascinating. What, what, that's just a, it's a weird image. What does it mean? First of all, we're dealing with his mouth. Out of his mouth, so we're dealing with Jesus' words. And the word for sword that John chooses is not your typical Roman short sword so that you'd use in battle, a short sword. This is a long sword that you would hold in the middle and have two blades on either end. So if you're a Marvel person, think of Thanos. Okay? This is his sword that he's whipping around. He's holding in the middle. He has these giant blades on the end. If you're a Star Wars person, think of Darth Maul. Okay, he has the double-edged lightsaber on each side. Nobody gets, nobody's safe. Whether you're on the right or the left, you're going to feel the wrath of that sword. This is Jesus, the warrior king. Don't mess with him. Don't mess with him. He just has to speak a word. And all those who oppose him, wherever you are, you're not safe. What that means for those who reject him is judgment and death. What that means for those who profess to love Jesus is this. If you are not willing to patiently endure with him when things get hard, when persecution comes, when suffering comes, you too will be judged. If you bail when things get hard, if you're a fair-weather Christian, you too will be judged. But if you stick with him to the end, no matter what happens, there will be a word of justice for all your enemies, for all those who did you wrong, for all those who oppose God, and there will be a word of reward for your obedience. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. If you stick close to Jesus, if you hold on to your faith. But no one gets away with anything in the end. John hears Jesus, he sees Jesus, and then he meets Jesus. This is his old friend. Remember that. John, it's crazy, in his gospel says he was the disciple that Jesus loved. That sounds kind of arrogant, but I think it was just the truth. They had a, a special friendship. They had a relationship. Uh, they're close. So this is seeing his old friend. This is seeing his best friend. And what does he do? He falls down on the ground as though dead. When I see good friends that I haven't seen in a while, that's not exactly what I do. Why does he do that? Because Jesus is now so glorious so exalted, he just crumbles under the weight of his glory. It's not veiled anymore. It, it, it's who he really is. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
How does Jesus respond to John's fear? Is he mad? Is he annoyed? Is he frustrated? Is he indifferent? He touches him with a holy, gentle touch. He comforts him. Don't be afraid. You're with me. You're with me. And the thing that you fear most, death, I have control over. Or for some of you, public speaking. Jesus has control over that too. Don't be afraid. This is where we need a God different from us because we don't expect God to treat us like this. This is where we need a God that we don't design because this is not how we expect him to treat us, is it? We maybe think if God does reach out to me, if God is coming toward me, it's more like a kid touching a worm for the first time. kind of gross, nasty. I know some of you think that about God. If he's coming near to me, if he does come near, if he does touch me, it's like that. It's like, yeah, okay, if I have to. Is that how you think of him, cringing when you sin and struggle and suffer? You might feel that way, but that's not the truth. This is who he is. One author says it this way, The high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Do you believe it? Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. That is Jesus' heart. And we think the opposite. We think he's close to me, he moves toward me, he loves me when I'm good. No, he loves you most when you're bad. That's the nature of the gospel. It's so important that you get that. That is what separates us from the Pharisees. That is what separates us from every other religion out there in the world that says, God will be pleased with you when you're good. So be good, and here's how you do it. The gospel says the opposite. God is pleased with Jesus Christ who comes to you at your worst and gives you himself as a substitute. Believe on him and God loves you like he loves his own son. That's amazing. And it's so hard for us to believe. Do you believe it? Have you met him? Have you led Jesus into your heart? Some of you haven't. Have you really opened your heart to him? Have you believed this is who he is? That when you're afraid and you're at your weakest and most vulnerable, he reaches down, touches you, and comforts you. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Let's keep moving. And because we like to keep things light on Sundays, let's talk about death. Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. Here's the big idea. Jesus decides when, where, and how every person is going to die. It's just that simple. He's a sovereign God. He's, it's his prerogative. And we kind of gave up any input in that conversation the moment that we sinned. Because the wages of sin is death. 
We don't get a say. The fact that you're breathing is grace. Whether you love Jesus or you don't, the fact that you're breathing is grace. You don't deserve it. Here's the good news. This invisible place when people go, where people go when they die, so we see a body, but the soul is departed. Jesus is in charge of that. He is in complete control. He has the keys. So you all have keys to your house. I hope you do. Which means what? You control access. You control who goes in, who goes out. The door is open. The door is locked. Your neighbor you don't want to see comes over. You lock the door. You go hide in your room. Kids, be quiet. We're not home. What do you mean we're not home? We are home. Shh. To see that person. Not that we've ever done that to any of you. Never we have. You control access in and out. This is the way Jesus controls death. He decides. He opens, he shuts the door. Why does he have that control? Because he conquered death. He controls it because he conquered it. He was raised from the dead on the third day. Praise God, because that means you and I are delivered from lifelong slavery to the fear of death. What is number one on every survey of what you are afraid of? Death. Jesus delivers you from that. You don't have to be afraid of it anymore, because what is it to you, Christian? Yeah, you don't know how, and it might be painful. Yes, that's a part of the fall. That's, that's a consequence that we all have to deal with. But what is death for you as a Christian? It's a doorway to glory. Like in a moment, you're there, and you never have to deal with this again. <laughs> so while we want to be compassionate, while we want to be understanding of the fear of death, you've been delivered from it. You have. Verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen and those that, those that are those that are to take place after this. Meaning, I'm going to show you, John, the true meaning of history during these end times. Between my first coming and my second coming, I'm going to show you what the patterns are, what the progress is, what I'm doing. You're going to see into heaven, so write it down. And we'll get into the angels next week, the churches, what that means. But let me just close with a challenge. Work at bringing your understanding of Jesus into line with the Bible. No more, I, I just picture Jesus as, don't settle for that. Don't settle for the world's interpretation of who Jesus is. Really? You want to trust the world? Trust your Bible. Trust who Jesus has revealed himself to be, the real person in the Gospels, in Revelation, even in the Old Testament, pointing forward to Jesus. The more that you do that, the more that there's less of a gap between who Jesus actually is and who you believe he is, the more blessed your life will be. Father God, we thank you for this, your holy word.
and the description of who Jesus is. Thank you that he is exhaustively on our side in the gospel. We just need to believe it, Lord. Give us faith. Give us faith. Give us a a teachable heart, a humble heart to learn and fall under the truth of your word, not stand over it in judgment. We ask that you would transform us into the likeness of him who sits upon the throne. In his name we pray. Amen.